Why are settled? Uh, just to bring it up again, if you were here last week, you heard me talking about making methodological choices uh, in the way that we read our Bibles, and I, I talked about me doing that as well and how I prepare for my sermons. I said, I said with the book of Luke in particular, uh, and narratives like it, sort of like uh, a, a, a bouncing a ping pong ball across a ping pong table, remember that little illustration I used? The idea that, you know, even within one chapter, you, you get a sense that if, as the ball is bouncing, there's a general forward direction, a general trajectory that the text is headed, but it still feels like it's bouncing all over the place from scene to scene, and those scenes can feel, you know, how, how, does, how does all that work together? Why did Luke throw that in there, right? How does that fit into the things around it? Uh, that's kind of the way it is sometimes with reading, with reading narratives. And so I, I mentioned that what I'm doing primarily on Sundays is taking sort of more of an aerial view rather than focusing on those individual bouncing points and looking at the different scenes and diving deeply into them. We're taking a, a, a broader view uh, where we're looking for kind of the connection themes across larger swaths of the chapter. That's, that's kind of my approach. And I'm, I'm telling you that because this chapter that we're in today, Luke chapter 10, is definitely one of the bouncier chapters, all right? There's lots of different things that are going on in chapter 10, and so up front, I'm telling you, I'm not going to be able to plumb the depths of each section, all right? Uh, I want to encourage you, because I'm not going to be doing that today, to read through it this week on your own, and plumb the depths of those individual sections for yourself. There's several significant, uh, uh, quite well-known passages here within Luke chapter 10. For example, it's here that we see Jesus say that, that the, the harvest is, is plentiful. Pray for workers, right, to go into the harvest and to reap those who are, need to hear the gospel. We see that in this chapter. We see here the parable of the Good Samaritan, uh, which is one of the, the great passages that t instructs us on what it means to be a neighbor and to love our neighbors. Uh, there's excellent application within that story, uh, that parable, uh, that talk about not just neighbor love, but cross-cultural love, or racial and ethnic love, uh, as, as boundaries are crossed in order to demonstrate love. There's lots to be mined there for application. And also in chapter 10 here, we see the story of Mary and Martha, and that, that great you know, contrast between what it means to be devoted to Christ and to be distracted with all the work that we have to do, right? So there's lots of good things to dive into on your own this week. I'm not going to dive into really any of what I just said uh, this morning. So you've got a great, wonderful week ahead of you of finding application in the Word, all right? Uh, let me pray, and then I'll talk about what we're going to do this morning, what I am diving into. So, Father, thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your people. Lord, your people, because you've called us to yourself and saved us from our sin. Because through Christ, Lord, you have washed us clean. And by your spirit, you have revealed to us, Lord, who you are and who we are as sinners and our need for you, Lord. You've drawn us. You've regenerated us. You've given us new hearts. You've given us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we could put our hope fully on Christ. That's why we are your people. It's because of you and your grace. So, Lord, thank you. And as we are together to open your word this morning, Lord, would you continue to draw us to yourself, continue to give us ears to hear, continue to lead us to Christ. And Lord, I particularly pray this morning that you'd help us to remember our salvation in such a way to bring joy. Increase our joy. Increase our love for you, Lord. Increase our... Um, just our confidence, Lord, in who we are now as forgiven sons and daughters of Christ. And may you get all the glory in our lives. We pray that in his name. Amen. So what am I going to dive into this morning? 
just kind of a brief theme that I see across this chapter. And I'll, I'll introduce the theme by asking you some questions that I think you may ask uh, regularly. I know I do. Here's the first question. How do we grow in our joy in the Lord? How do I, how do I see my joy increase? Do you ask that question for yourself? And, and if you ask that question for yourself, maybe it's because there are times when you sense my joy doesn't feel very present. It's not very joyful. Like I, 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 Sometimes we can feel like we're sort of status quo, right? Just sort of like cruising through life in, in a state of spiritual kind of numbness. Even as believers, we, we may acknowledge like, I know I'm a believer. I, I know God is good. You know, I, I know that there are seasons of joy, but like how does... How does that increase in my life? And related to that, the second question would be, how do I grow in my love for God? My joy in God, my joy in Christ is, is so deeply tied to the level of love that I feel like I have for him. When I, when I know and I, when I experience love for God, I, I experience joy, but I don't always feel that level of love, right? I, I can feel a little spiritual, spiritually numb. So how do we grow in that? I don't want to stay spiritually numb. I want to grow. How do we do it? Well, here's the big idea from Luke 10 that I want to focus on, and I'm going to put this up on the screen for you. The main idea is this. As Christ rejoices in the salvation of every believer. And we're going to see that in just a minute when we read the text. We see here in chapter 10, he rejoices over his disciples' salvation. So as he rejoices in our salvation, we should also rejoice in the fact that our names are written in heaven, which is another way of saying that we're saved, that we have salvation. Our names are written in heaven. That's something we're going to see here in Luke chapter 10. And Jesus says, rejoice for that reason. So because he rejoices in our salvation, we too should rejoice for that same reason and thereby live lives of loving obedience and devotion to him, to our sacrificial savior. The thereby is significant. The thereby meaning because I can rejoice in my salvation, that rejoicing spurs my life of devotion to him and obedience to him, right? It's rooted in my joy of salvation. That's the main idea. And there's going to be three points to the message this morning. They all start with the letter R, all right? The three points are going to be these, rejoicing, responding, and remembering. Rejoicing, responding, remembering. Before we begin our first point, let's read the first half of the chapter. Verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 24. Again, a longer stretch of scripture, so grab your Bible, follow along with me. Verse 1. After this, and after what you say, well, right before that, Jesus has just told his disciples about the cost of following him. And he's even turned away, it seems, some who said they wanted to follow him, but he said, have you really considered the cost? Right? After that, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him, two by two, into every town and place where he himself was about to go. So this is the first time beyond the 12 that we're seeing him sending out more of his disciples. We're told there's 72 at this point. We haven't really seen uh, you know, numbers given yet to these crowds that are following him. But at this point, there's at least 72 people who are following Christ, and he's sending them out to prepare, to kind of go preach the gospel and prepare the way for his arrival into the towns that they're traveling to. Verse 2, he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I am sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. Carry no money bag, no knapsack, no sandals, and greet no one on the road. Whatever house you enter, first say, peace be to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest upon him. 
But if not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking what they provide, for the laborer deserves his wages. Do not go from house to house. Whenever you enter a town and they receive you, eat what is set before you. Heal the, seat, excuse me, heal the sick in it and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near you. But whenever you enter a town and they do not receive you, go into its streets and say, even the dust of your town that clings to our feet we wipe off against you. Nevertheless, know this, that the kingdom of God has come near. I tell you, it will be more bearable on that day for Sodom than for that town. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago, sitting in sackcloth and ashes. But it will be more bearable in the judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You shall be brought down to Hades. The one who hears you hears me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and the one who rejects me rejects him who sent me. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. In that same hour, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Then turning to the disciples, he said privately, Blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you that many prophets and kings desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. Rejoicing, responding, remembering. Here's the first point, rejoicing. But in what? Again, rejoicing in the gift of salvation. That's what we're to rejoice in. Verse 17, we see the 72 disciples have just returned from this sending out. Jesus sent them into these various places. They've returned from what it seems is a pretty exciting and pretty encouraging ministry outing, having preached the gospel, having preached the, the kingdom of God, it says here throughout these various towns. They were healing people's illnesses. They were healing diseases. And it appears based on what they've said that they were rejoicing over, that they were even casting out demons in the name of Jesus. Anybody ever been on a short-term missions trip before? A few of you. This would be, I would think, a very successful short-term mission trip, right? Sent out and, I mean, we're proclaiming God, we're healing people, we're casting demons out. Their joy in this ministry is clearly understandable, if you've ever had opportunity to share Christ with somebody, or maybe you've had opportunity to, to, to help somebody overcome a very serious problem in their lives by sharing the gospel with them or encouraging them in the word of God and praying over them, you know that when you have opportunities to do that and you see fruit, right? You see success in that ministry. That is an exceedingly encouraging thing. It's joy-giving. It's life-giving, Right? If you get the opportunity to share Jesus with somebody and they respond, there's nothing better than that. It's one of the great joys and thrills of the Christian life. So having said that, it might come as a surprise to us all <laughs> to read here that Jesus wants to redirect their joy. Right? They're rejoicing over this ministry success. Look again at verse 20. He says, nevertheless, don't rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names 
are written in heaven. Now, why would he say that? Why would he say don't rejoice in this ministry success, but rejoice rather in your salvation? Well, Jesus supplies us with two reasons why he would say this in verses 18 and 19. The first one in verse 18, look again at what it says. He says to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. What's he talking about there? Well, he's alluding to what's recorded for us in Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 and following. And I'm going to read it. I'll put it up on the screen so you can read along with me. This is what it says in Isaiah 14. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How you are cut down to the ground, you who laid the nations low. You said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. and I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. This text from Isaiah 14 in Jewish tradition was understood to be both the explanation for and the description of the origin of Satan. How he turned evil, how he came about. This once archangel whose name was Lucifer. He was known as the, the day star, the angel of light. That's what Lucifer means. But this one became prideful. And in his pride, it led him to rebel against God by believing the very lie that he tried to tell Adam and Eve in the garden, right? You can be just like God. He believed that he could be like the Most High. And that sin, that rebellion against God, brought about a curse on him that cast him down from heaven and sealed his eternal judgment. The origin of and the description of Satan. And we see the same language used in the book of Revelation. Before there, it, it, it talks about the ultimate judgment of Satan and the demons who followed him. Before that's finally executed, we read this. I'll put this up on the screen too, Revelation 12. And the great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent who was called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. So what is Jesus saying to his disciples here? He says, I saw that happen. I saw it happen in the past, and it's going to happen again in the final judgment. Here's the point he's making. By whose authority has Satan been subjected to defeat? The disciples or Jesus? The answer is pretty obvious, right? Jesus. It's his authority. So the disciples, he's saying, shouldn't rejoice in demons being subjected to them because really they didn't have anything to do with it. You didn't have anything to do with that. The second reason why their rejoicing needs to be directed elsewhere is in verse 19. Look again there. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So again, he's saying something similar there. Any authority that they've been given is derived authority. It's not theirs. It belongs to Christ. So what's he saying here when he says, don't rejoice in this that, you're, that demons have been subject to you? He's not saying, don't rejoice. He's not saying, I don't want you to rejoice. He just wants them to rejoice for the right reason. Don't rejoice because spirits are subject to you. Satan has never been subject to you. He is and always will be subject to the king, Jesus Christ. But here's the thing. 
Here's the thing. You were once subject to Satan. He's not subject to you, but you were once subject to him. Remember what we read in Colossians chapter 1. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. Who's he? Jesus. God has delivered us from the domain of darkness. We were subjected to Satan's domain. And he has transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We also read in Ephesians chapter 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. And what does he say after that? He says, you were following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. You were subjected to him, Satan, the devil. Rejoice now that you are no longer subjected to Satan. That's what you should rejoice in. If you want to rejoice, and you should, rejoice in the grace of your salvation which is a gift of God through Christ. Don't rejoice in what you've done. Let me say that again. Don't rejoice in what you've done. Rejoice in what you've received. That's the point. And This is precisely what Jesus rejoices in. Look at verse 21. Again, he says, In that same hour, he, Jesus, rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. And he said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to the little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. God, you have shown your salvation to these people, the humble, the simple, not the the wise, not, not not the proud, but these disciples that you've given to me, Lord, you've shown that to them. You've granted that to him, and he rejoices in that. That is a remarkable statement here. It's a remarkable passage. One commentator says of this, it's the most exultant description of Jesus in all of Scripture. That's a big statement. The most exultant description of Jesus in all of Scripture. Another says the word here translated as rejoice is a strong word containing the idea of exuberant gladness, a gladness that fills up the heart. So in other words, this scene shows us Jesus rejoicing in a flow of emotion that I think would seem to us, if we were witnessing this moment, to be downright giddy. He's exuberant. Our salvation makes Jesus exceedingly glad. What is he so excited about? The reality of our salvation. And it's beautiful here that this rejoicing is shared in these verses by the full participation of the Trinity. Did you catch that? Father, I'm rejoicing in your spirit, in what you have done. The whole trinity is involved in this joy of the salvation of the disciples. What else does he say here? We see here that any time a person comes to believe on Christ for salvation, it is because God has sovereignly acted in granting them that saving faith. Verse 22, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Father is except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Again, don't rejoice in what you've done. Rejoice in what you've received. You're a Christian this morning. You're a disciple of Jesus because God has shown to you he has revealed to you who he is through his son and so we should rejoice in our salvation as christ does it is a wonderful mystery of grace we talked about that a couple weeks ago 
That's why we rejoice. What a wonderful mystery of grace. And Jesus says here, this is something the Old Testament saints long to see. Verse 23, blessed are the eyes that see what you see. For I tell you, many prophets and kings desired to see what you see, and they did not see it. And they desired to hear what you hear, and they did not hear it, but you have. Blessed are you. Rejoice in your salvation. I say that I think that's the big idea because we've seen this constant theme throughout Luke's gospel so far. Every, every Sunday we've come to this text and we've read through, we see Luke is carefully pointing out to us again and again this fact. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior sent from the Father into the world to redeem sinners like you and me. And that this salvation is a gift. It is a gracious gift given to those whom the Father and the Son have granted the ears to hear and the eyes to see. Luke has been beating that drum over and over again. Have you noticed it? Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the Savior. This is a gift. Grace in your salvation. That drum is beat and beat and beat. He's also been driving home another theme again and again, which is this, the need for those who hear to respond to that message, right? To respond to the fact that Jesus is the Son of God, the Savior of the world, who's come to call people to repentance and believing in him. Respond. So I told you we have three R's. The second R this morning, we'll move into that now, is this, that point of response. First, rejoice. Second, respond. What are we responding to? We're responding to the call of salvation. Now, when I started this morning, I told you that my methodological choice of doing the big picture overview rather than diving into all the deep parts of the individual scenes, that's going to that's gonna come <laughs> into play here. I'm not going to be able to dive deeply into these things that I wish I had more time this morning to delve into. But for the sake of time, what I want to do is I'm going to quickly, quickly read the rest of the chapter. All right, we're going to finish it out. And then I'm just going to make a few observations about the various calls to respond to Christ that we see in the text. So let's start in verse 25 and we'll read through the end. Behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to them, to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village. And a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. 
And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things. But one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. So we look at chapter 10, and we think about this idea of responding to this call of the arrival of the kingdom of God, Jesus as the Son of God, repent and believe, come trust in him for your salvation. We see in these different scenes contrasting responses, right? On the the first half of the chapter, we see the unrepentant cities in the region, right? Those that that, uh, they hear the message and they reject the message. They reject the disciples and Jesus tells them, "Shake, shake the dust off your feet, disciples. Don't Don't stay there, shake the dust off, but tell them yet the kingdom of God is coming near to them. They are unrepentant, and they will face judgment. Woe to you. Woe to you. That is a statement of judgment. It will be better for Sodom on that day than for you. Why? Because Sodom didn't see what you saw. Sodom didn't hear what you heard. The Son of God is is in your midst, and you've rejected judgment. Versus the disciples who obviously have responded. And notice that what Jesus tells the disciples here is he gives them a sense of urgency to go and proclaim this message to those who need to yet hear it and repent. Don't stop. Don't take anything with you. Just keep moving. Keep moving forward. Trust in the provisions that you're given. But quickly go. Tell them. Tell them. Pray for more workers, right? There's an urgency. Why? Because the judgment of God for rejecting the Christ is serious. Two responses, the unrepentant cities and the response of the disciples. Second, we see the lawyer in this second half of the parable of the Good Samaritan, the lawyer who asked Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? But we see that he's looking to just justify himself. Well, who's my neighbor? What, what do I have to do? Right? It's interesting that he starts with, how do I inherit eternal life? Inheritance is you usually don't have to do anything, right? <laughs> you just have to receive from your father, right, the inheritance. But here he's, he's saying, well, well, what do I have to, what do I have to, who do I have to do this to, right? Who do I have to love? Who do I have to care for? Uh, very works-focused, justifying self, as opposed to the good Samaritan who we see here selflessly loves his neighbor. And, of course, we see in the Mary and Martha section here the distraction, again, the focus on works for Martha versus the devotion of Mary loving God. When I look at those different responses, I think back over what we've seen throughout Luke so far. I'm reminded again of this idea of response. Remember when Jesus talked about the the different soils, the the parable of the, the four soils? And I see here in these unresponses examples of the three bad soils, right? The first bad soil was the seed that was scattered along the path and it was just snatched away by the evil one. I see that in the unrepentant cities. There's no response there. There's rejection from the get-go. It's just snatched away. I see in the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite, who seem to have responded to God on the surface, but what happens? The trials and troubles of life come in the way. Oh, there's danger on this road. I'm out, right? And we see them walk away. We see it sort of choked out by the cares And then we see here also in the Mary and Martha scene, again, choking away by worries and troubles for Martha. Contrasted with the response that we've been pointed to throughout Luke, 
love God, love others, be my witnesses. We see all of that here too in chapter 10. Martha's love for Christ, the Samaritan's love for others, and the disciples being witnesses for Jesus in the villages. So I know, again, we can dive deeply into each of those scenes and pull out lots of good individual applications. And and again, I encourage you to do that. But for the sake of, of time and the sermon focus here this morning, I just want you to see, we're seeing it again, right? There's always this call to respond. And we see the contrast of those who do and those who don't. And so we're faced once again with this same call on ourselves. How are you responding to Jesus' call to recognize him as the Son of God, the Savior God has sent in the world to redeem you and me sinners. How are we responding? And we pray for any who are hearing this message today that God would give you ears to hear and eyes to see the salvation available to you in Christ. Many of us, most of us, have responded in faith. So let me go back to the question that we started with. How do you grow in your joy as a follower of Jesus? How do you grow in your love for God. When I look at the Martha and Mary text, and by the way, I think we're going to dive a little deeper into it next Sunday. I'm not going to promise that, but David's teaching next Sunday. But as I look at that, on the surface, I just say, boy, I want to be a Mary. (laughs) I don't want to be like Martha. I want to be devoted in love to the Lord. I I don't want to be distracted and and worried about my own, you know, efforts and my own, you know, I I don't want to miss it. I want to grow in my love for Christ, don't, don't you? So how do, we, how do we do that? It's the third R. We rejoice, we respond. Thirdly, we remember. Remember what? Remember the source of your salvation. Remember the source of your salvation. I recently read a, a, a line, uh, the staff together, the church staff were reading through uh, Dane Ortland's book, Deeper, and there was a line that, that we read that, that really stuck with me. He was talking about growing as Christians. In fact, the whole book is really about going deeper into Christ. How do we grow together? And that's what we're talking about right now, right? How do we grow? So growth as Christians is usually referred to as the process of sanctification. Have you heard that term? Sanctification. It's it's growing in holiness. It's growing in Christ-likeness. So so Ortland in his book is highlighting the distinction between that concept, sanctification, which is a, a lifelong process. It's the gradual growing in grace that we experience as we mature in Christ. He's, he's highlighting that and, and, and talking about the difference between that and justification. Justification being not a process, but an event. When we first trust in Christ, when our eyes are open to see our sin and we, we, we cry out the, that cry of a sinner, Lord, save me, we are justified in that moment by Jesus' death to cleanse us from our sins. We are made right. We're justified. We're made right with God. It's not a process. It's a moment in time. Do you understand the difference? Justification, a moment. Sanctification, a lifelong process of growth. Okay? So Ortland's talking about that. But then he says this. Again, how do we grow? He's asked, we're asking that question. He says, this might sound odd at first. But the process of sanctification, the growing is in large part fed by constant returning ever more deeply to the event of justification. So let me, let me just restate that very simply. You know what he's saying? He's saying you never graduate from the gospel. And if you want to grow 
in your love for God, if you want to grow in your joy for God, the deeper things that you're seeking for aren't some deeper unknown realities out there that you've got to go figure out and find. They're found when you turn back to what you first know. Your salvation in Christ. What he's done for you. You never graduate from the gospel. How we grow in our joy in the Lord, how do we grow in our love for God? You know, I think what we can do here is we need to re-examine Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan here. When all is said and done, we won't properly understand this parable until we situate ourselves in the right place within it. Because usually when we read a parable like this, the Good Samaritan, this specific parable, it's, 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 it's sort of, uh, it's, it's easy to see ourselves as one of the passers-by. Am I like the priest or the Levite who's going to go to the other side of the road and leave the guy to die? Or am I more like the Good Samaritan who's going to do something about it? And that's a good thing for us to consider because we're, we're compelled to consider which one we're like. That's where the application is in terms of how we go and do likewise, go and live our lives loving God and loving other people. That's an important application that demonstrates the true heart of a disciple. However, when we consider the parable in light of the broader message of salvation and response, we soon realize that we're not really like the passers-by in the story. We're a lot more like the dead guy in the ditch, the half-dead guy in the ditch. We need to be rescued. We need to be rescued by someone who's willing to come to us and show us sacrificial love if we're to avoid perishing. We need somebody to deliver us from our sin-sick condition. And when we see it that way, we realize that it's Jesus who's the true and better Good Samaritan. That's not who I am, not yet. It's Jesus. He came to rescue us, even though we were still his enemies. Did you, did you catch the, 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 the shocking part of the parable? You might not have if you don't know much about the history of the region here. But in the parable, the Samaritan was an enemy of the Jews. They hated each other. It was the priest and the Levite, the Jewish religious leaders who should have been the ones to stop to help the Jewish guy who was lying in the ditch. The fact that it was their enemy who stopped is shocking. And yet Jesus came to rescue us even though we were still his enemies. He found us while we were dead in our sins. And he paid the price. He paid it in full to heal us from our wounds. How did he do it? He did it at the cross. He paid your debt. He paid your debt and satisfied it so much in full that he could say, if there's anything that needs to be paid, I've paid it. That's how he came to rescue us. The lawyer asked this question, how do I inherit eternal life? The answer to the question is that we can only inherit this life by trusting in the death and the resurrection of Jesus on our behalf. That his death pays the death penalty we owe. That his resurrection secures the life that we need to live. That his payment on our behalf is sufficient to make us fully alive. That's how you inherit eternal life. You trust in him. 
And once we comprehend that gift of God's grace to us in the life, death, and resurrection of his son, you know what happens to our hearts? When we comprehend the gift. Man, I, I start welling up with joy. And my love for God increases. Begins to flourish. And when I, when I forget, and I, and I sort of see myself coasting a little bit spiritually and getting a little numb and wondering what happened to my joy and what happened to my love, I, I, I don't go figure out things that I can go do more of to stir up more of that love. I go back and I remind myself what it is that he has done for me. A sinner, an enemy of God. He calls me his son. I remember and my love grows and my joy comes back and I do it again tomorrow and I'll do it again on Tuesday and I'll do it again on Wednesday with God's help by God's grace because I need to remember it every day. The Apostle Paul was a man who knew he needed to remember it. And he says this in 1 Timothy 1, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy. For this reason, that in me as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. And then he says this, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. There is joy in that statement. There is love for God in that statement. And it's rooted in him remembering the grace of God for a junked up sinner like me. We never graduate from the gospel. Love and joy. You want it? You never graduate from the gospel. And because I've received that grace in abundance, then Yes, I am free, and not only free, but compelled to share that same grace with others. My love for God overflows then in love for others because I've been given so much. And when I know how much I've been given, I can't help but pour out because I have, I, have, I have it all. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. Show mercy to others as God has shown mercy to you. There is tremendous application here. And again, I encourage you this week, dive into it. See what it means to pray and to go with urgency, to share the good news of the kingdom of God to those around you who are perishing. See what it means to go and love your neighbor. See what it means to be devoted to Christ instead of devoted to all the distractions of your day. Dive into those applications deeply. My goal this morning is just to give you a little nudge by reminding you of this. Rejoice in the salvation you've been given. Respond to that grace by loving God and loving others in fulfillment of the law. Always Remembering Christ, the source of our salvation and joy. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the gift of salvation in Christ. Lord, it's good for us to, to just humble ourselves 
and remember where we've come from. It's good for us to remember that we are, we are sinners who have offended you. And Lord, I, I, don't, I don't say it's good to remember that, that we would stay there. I don't mean to beat us down, Lord. I, I think that that's a wrong application. What, but what is a good application is to say, how could you love a sinner like us? You did. Help us to remember that. We are no longer sinners under the curse of eternal judgment because Christ has paid our debt. Help us to remember. And Lord, as we, as we see Jesus rejoicing over our salvation, Lord, give us the same heart that we would rejoice in the new reality of our sonship and daughtership of, 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 of the King, made right, made holy, made clean, picked up from the ditch, given new life, and, and given full money sacks to go out and to love other people the same way. What a great life you've given to us. Even in the midst of difficulty and trial and suffering, what a great life you've given to us. Because our life with you is an eternal one a hopeful one, a redeemed one. Thank you, Lord. Would you give us the gift, Lord, of increasing joy and love as you grow our faith, as you grow our comprehension of the good news of the gospel? Would, would you help us keep our eyes fixed on you? Forgive us for looking away, Lord. Help us keep our eyes fixed on you. And we, we can rejoice. And we do that now as we stand and we sing for your honor and glory and our good. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen.